You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening will be taken from Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountains of God. And when he sent the word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done for Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is the word of our Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. What a joy it is to assemble together as your people under it. So now... O triune God, Lord Jesus, we pray for grace to understand it and trust you more and more. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you all, uh, to be with you this evening. Have you guys ever given much reflection to how crazy it is that we're all sitting here tonight? Not, not, Not just that you know, some people are from Albuquerque, some people are from other parts of the country, and that we just happen to coincidentally be here or something, uh, or even how crazy it is that humanity still exists uh, today in 2019 or something. That's a miracle of in and of itself. But what I mean is that there are Christian churches in North America in the first place at all, that 2,000 years ago, some itinerant homeless teacher in like the backwoods part of the Roman Empire, uh, started a movement that spread like wildfire all across the Roman Empire. That in and of itself is crazy. But then that movement uh, just spread all throughout the world. Not only that, but that the nation that this itinerant homeless teacher, the nation that he came from, the nation of Israel, this nation is a small and often persecuted nation throughout its history. It was often smashed. It was enslaved and exiled a couple of times en masse and yet survived. And then here we are, 
some 3,500 years after the time of Moses that we just heard Daniel read from, 3,500 years or so after that, where Moses himself was leading a small, former enslaved nation homelessly through the wilderness. And here we are, not only remembering this time in history, not only considering and learning from their experience, but we are actually, today, considering ourselves to be their spiritual descendants. That's actually quite crazy. If we give just more than a, a moment's reflection, what we are actually doing here uh, in, in North America, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States, 2019, what we are doing and saying throughout our weeks and certainly together here on Sundays is remarkably crazy. But it's great. And tonight, Exodus 18 is going to give us a glimpse at why and how all of that can be true. Exodus 18 is going to give us a glimpse of where this whole Exodus story that we've spent the last 12 weeks or so, uh, where this Exodus story is going, in fact, where all of human history is headed. So tonight we're going to work through this entire chapter of 18 in two sections through the lens of Jethro, who is Moses' non-Jewish father-in-law. So together we'll see in two sections that Jethro brings sacrifices and then Jethro brings wisdom. Let's just get right into it. And Jethro brings sacrifices. Like last week, like we mentioned, uh, the original Hebrew doesn't have these nice handy-dandy verse numbers or subtitles or even chapter headings. So if you're reading through the words from chapter 17 and into 18, verse 1 of 18 can come pretty abruptly. Last week we saw that the Amalekites, they came up and fought with Israel, and yet God provided deliverance through judgment. Then at the end of that chapter, Moses built an altar of remembrance. He renamed that place of the battle. He renamed it Yahweh, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh, the the God of Israel, is the flag of Israel. And Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's how chapter 17 ends. And then in verse 1 of chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And you're like, wait, where did this come from? Who, who is this person? What, what's going on? This is kind of a, a hard turn. Well, we know Jethro from Exodus 3 and 4. After fleeing from Egypt, Moses, remember in the movie, Moses, he goes to a well and he finds these seven daughters being attacked by some shepherds and he fights them off. And uh, their father, after the fact, welcomes Moses into their nomadic community and Moses marries one of, this, one of these daughters. He marries Zipporah, daughter of, of Jethro. So he's not completely a new character, but he's, he's not a hugely significant character in this story. But like Amalek in chapter 17 that we saw last week, Midian, who Jethro belongs to, the tribe of Midian, Midian is also a descendant of Abraham. Like Amalek, Midian is a beneficiary of God's grace and kindness towards Abraham. The Amalekites exist and are in many ways blessed by the common grace of God. But like Amalek, Midian, whom Jethro belongs to, is not part of the covenant people of God, which traced its specific blessing through Isaac and Jacob. So, 18 verses 1 through 12, beginning with its abrupt but the continuous story from chapter 17, is one giant contrast against the Amalekites from chapter 17. In fact, we might say that verses 1 through 12 of chapter 18 is 
not only a contrast of the Amalekites of chapter 17, but in fact, where this entire, the entirety of the Genesis and Exodus story have been heading. So let's see why. Jethro hears about everything that God has done for Israel, of how he has brought them out of Egypt. And so he comes with Moses' wife and his sons. It's a little unclear at what point they were separated from Moses. There's some debate on that, at what point they went back to be with Jethro. But nevertheless, they all come out to meet Moses and Israel. And then the end of verse 5 offers a rather large hint at where the narrative of really the rest of the book is headed. They came to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Really, this is going to be the setting for the rest of the book of Exodus. There's not going to be much movement at all for the rest of this book. There's much more on this mountain that we'll begin to introduce next week in chapter 19, but for now, we can say that this is the place where God has come to meet with his people. This is like a middle space between heaven and earth. And then, in in like an unbelievable amount of super humility, Moses goes out and bows down to Jethro. He he kisses him. Here's a guy with like the very power of God coursing through him, fresh off the heels of Moses, through, through God's power, humiliating the most powerful empire on earth in Egypt, and even closer to maybe even the day before this, of defeating a large army of the Amalekites. If, if anyone would have thought highly of himself, perhaps it would be Moses. But Moses comes out in an exemplary model of humility and indifference, and he greets his father-in-law. And then Moses brings Jethro into his tent, where he tells him all about what God has done. So this likely isn't like an REI, like four-person, zippered, like rain-covered tent or something. Maybe you've got a little bit of room to roll around and put a small table or something. No, if you've, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, the movie, Jethro's tent in that movie is probably pretty close to what it would have been. Like a huge place, large enough for dancing and for a, a large meal. And it's in here that Jethro hears the specifics of the Exodus, what has happened. Up until this point, it's all perhaps been third-hand news of what's happened in Egypt. This third-hand news has been beginning to travel all over North Africa and across the wilderness into the Middle East, but now he hears firsthand. It's like like a D-Day veteran returning home. Perhaps people in America or in England had heard about through the news, what had happened on the beaches of Normandy, but then perhaps with their father or their grandfather or something later on, getting to sit around the table and hear an unrushed retelling of what had happened on that day. This is what Jethro is finally getting to hear from Moses, someone who was there. And so Jethro hears the news, and in verse 9, he rejoices for what God has done. Now, who knows what, up until this point, Jethro had thought about or believed or if he had heard or knew about Yahweh at all. To keep in line with our entrepreneur, like how I built this thinking from last week, uh, maybe Jethro is like a dad whose, whose daughter is just once, has just now started dating this guy who's like started some weird website. Uh, and this guy, he's like convinced it's going to be a big deal. And, but it's kind of weird, his website. It's like, his website's got some letters in it, like B&B, Air, B&B, but it's a really strange business model. He's convinced it's going to be a big deal, but the entire business model is based on the premise of letting strangers stay in your house. Like, what in the world, man? Like, people are going to trash your house, and this is never going to work. For sure, you're not going to make any money on this. And my daughter, he's, she's thinking about dating this guy. This is what he's making of his life. It's like, cringe face emoji, right? Like, this is who you really want to marry, sweetie? So, 
beginning, and this beginning of the story, you know, it was great that Moses uh, rescued his daughter Zipporah, and he spent a lot of time with, with Jethro's family. So Jethro has to have thought pretty highly of him, but then, okay, Moses goes up onto a mountain and meets a god at a burning bush or something. And this guy, this god in the burning bush says that he wants me to go to Egypt, the most powerful empire on the earth. And he wants me to tell the Pharaoh there to let the entirety of his slave force just go for no reason. Like, cringe face emoji. Like, this is my son-in-law. Like, I know, he's, I know he means well. He's got good intentions, but seriously, man. But now, it's like his multi-billionaire son-in-law has just returned from Silicon Valley. And he tells his father-in-law of all that has happened in his career. But rightly, Jethro sees that it wasn't the success of the plan that makes him impressed with Moses. It was the success of the God who sent Moses that makes Jethro impressed with Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, Jethro says in verse 10, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. The news that Jethro had heard rustling over the wilderness was the same news that the Amalekites had heard coming as well. But the same news that drove the Amalekites towards defensiveness, toward violent opposition against Israel and against their God, instead here drives Jethro to joy. Incredible what Yahweh has done. Now, we're not sure what kind of priest Jethro was, what kinds of gods he worshipped. Maybe, in fact, it's possible that he could have still been worshipping Yahweh, some distant ancestor of, or a dis- descendant from Abraham. But news of what Yahweh had done now changes Jethro's thinking. It changes his action. He says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Meaning, before, I wasn't quite so sure. I wasn't quite so sure that, first of all, that he is even there. You can't see him. I think he's maybe there, but maybe he's just one of the many. Well, now he's realizing, I now don't think about how I can fit this God into my small and insignificant life, how I can fit this God into this uh, imagined life of my own imagination, the, the, the life that I'd always dreamed of myself, and then just maybe take this God and fit him into my plans. Now, after all, because of this God who has humiliated Egypt. After all of that, after all that I have heard about and seen through the life of this people, this God is much bigger than I thought. What in the world is my small life in comparison to him? Instead, my small life needs to fit into the world that God has actually created, not the world that I had imagined and just after the fact tried to fit him in. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. He is not one of many. He has no rival. He is the creator God of the universe. And what is my life in comparison? How can my life fit into what he is doing? And so in Exodus 9, before before the Exodus even happens, God told Pharaoh through Moses, God said to, to Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power 
so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And now, here, that's coming into fruition. The nations are coming to worship God. Jethro realized that he had perhaps been worshiping the wrong God. Jethro realized that he was sacrificing the wrong things in his life, realized that he was living the wrong way, that he was living outside and apart from God's people. And the news of God's powerful deliverance grabbed him by the shoulders and turned him. This news of deliverance turned him toward joy and life, turned him toward feasting. Jethro offers a sacrifice, presumably still in Moses' tent, perhaps another glimpse of what's to come with the sacrifices in the tabernacle. And then Moses, Jethro, and the elders of Israel enjoy a meal together with God. Now, verse 12 is really easy to blow past without much reflection, but don't do that. Here we have a meal following a sacrifice that joins Jew and Gentile together before God. And that's actually a decent summary of the entire Bible. A meal following a sacrifice that joins Jew and Gentile together before God, right here in Exodus 18. It's actually what we do here every Sunday. For those who have heard the news of what God has objectively done in history, of hearing of his deliverance, God the Father forgiving sins through the life and death and resurrection of God the Son, that he has redeemed and purchased those from death to life. And he is now dwelling with and leading his people through a wilderness but towards a home into greater hope, faith, and love through God the Spirit. For those of us who have heard that news and now seek to fit our very small and insignificant lives into a much grander and greater story of redemption and deliverance, we think on the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and then we come together united with one another, joining together with Jesus, the table host, who invites and welcomes, just as uh, Kyle read to us earlier from Isaiah 55, of come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, those of you who have nothing but the empty hands of faith, nothing to purchase your own salvation and redemption, but are relying solely on the provision of Christ our King, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, Jew and Gentile, Amalekite and Midianite. Come, Navajo and Hispanic or black or white or rich or poor or male or female or healthy or sick, young or old, come and find peace and fellowship with God. The table isn't the thing that brings peace and forgiveness. Remember, the meal comes after the sacrifice. The sacrifice doesn't come after the meal, or the sacrifice isn't the meal. Our faith in Christ on the cross is what brings us peace and forgiveness. But now for those who have peace and life at the cross, come. Come and enjoy. Come for the sustaining appetizer. Not just a meal of full contentment, but a meal that is meant to not only satisfy, but is also meant to point us forward. Just as this meal with Moses and Jethro prepared us for this, for what we do each Sunday, this prepares us for the full, final, satisfying marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this is pointing and moving somewhere. In his earthly ministry, Jesus is just like always eating with people. Like, it seems like every other chapter. It's just Jesus sitting down again and eating with people. 
It seems like food and eating are one of the ways that God best intends to meet with his people. Even in our call to worship tonight from Isaiah 25, where all of this is heading, like we thought about a few weeks ago, the story of the Bible is starting with a meal, a meal of people trying to eat apart from God and is moving towards an Isaiah 25 meal where God dwells with his people finally and forever, doing away with all evil. And so we ought to move toward each other in the same way, initiating meals with each other, meeting and enjoying the company and the fellowship of each other, meeting with and enjoying each other tonight after this service, enjoying one another over food, inviting each other uh, into our homes with each other. College students, if you don't want to maybe like invite uh, some of us to the cafeteria at your dorm hall, just invite yourself over to our dinner tables. We, We would love for you to do that. You can even take the initiative in that way but also meeting with and inviting our unbelieving neighbors into our homes that they might meet the host of our table, the Lord Jesus himself, that they might see and experience and they might taste and see that the Lord is good. Something we say in our membership class, each time we do that class, that we could all perhaps use a bit of ongoing encouragement, encouragement with is, here's a, here's a challenge for us, the members of Christ Church, that we ought to aim toward inviting somebody else from our church. Aim towards inviting another member or regular attender of our church once a month over for a meal. It's not a huge commitment. Once a month, 12 times a year. But here's another challenge for us, to aim toward having an unbelieving friend, an unbelieving neighbor, an unbelieving coworker over also once a month. 24 meals at your house. I think if we operated in this kind of radical hospitality, and actually, is it really that radical twice a month to do something like this? But this kind of hospitality would continue to really and utterly transform our community. The Lord invites us to eat, and we ought to invite others to eat as well. So, Jethro, the Midianite, he comes with sacrifices, and now second, and through the end of chapter 18, Jethro brings wisdom. Since I only had Daniel, the Bruce, uh, read to verse 12, let's just take a minute and read through this next episode of Jethro together. Beginning in verse 13, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and of hundreds of fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and you will bear the burden, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Okay, so the people are encamped around the mountain, but we've got a problem. There's a huge camp of people, and these people are all sinners, just like all humans. They act selfishly against each other. They act short-sightedly against their own current and future joy. They act short-sightedly against the good of people and for the good of creation. They act defiantly against God who has led them out of slavery. But likely what we've got going on here is not just big picture sin for sure, but personal squabbles. And any parent with multiple children knows exactly what Moses must be feeling. It can be exhausting all day long to hear, Mommy! Mommy! He took my toy. He kicked my shin. Mommy! And this is like, Moses! Like all day long, morning to evening, all day long, one crying kid after the other saying, He hit me. She was mean. Moses is absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of conflict and complaints, but while there was undoubtedly some just childlike disputes here, there's also some, probably some issues that are likely legitimate, some issues that are difficult to judge. Each side thinking that they have a good case, and they actually need a third party to arbitrate. Maybe things like, this guy over here, he accidentally killed my ox. Like, I'm out of ox. He needs to pay for the ox. And then this guy over here saying, it was an accident, man. I didn't mean to. Surely you're not, I'm not going to be held responsible for, ac- for an accident. Or something like, this guy over here stole from me. We have multiple witnesses. We need to know what the punishment ought to be. Moses, as the leader of God's people, as the prophet of God, as like we saw last week, as the very image of God, God's appointed means for expanding his rule and reign on earth, Moses has taken it upon himself to be God to the people. Not in like a bad way, not elevating himself to the place of God, not like a power-hoarding narcissist or something. Just at this point, he doesn't even have a category for anyone but himself to arbitrate and to judge the people, to keep the peace. And so Jethro, he sees what's happening to Moses. That is just one case after another, all day, every day, morning to night. And in the wisdom that God has given Jethro, he tells Moses, he's like, my man, delegate. Delegate the easy stuff so that you only have to worry about the really difficult stuff. Now, real quick, before we get into Jethro's solution, chapter 18 is going to show us the need for the law, which is going to begin in chapter 20. Like the ox and the stealing stuff. We, the, the people of Israel needed to know what to do. One function of the law is that the entire nation of Israel might know right from wrong that they might know the communal expectations of living rightly with one another and the communal expectations of living rightly before God. They would no longer be forced to like subjectively guess what the right and wrong thing would be and then bring their guesses to Moses or to some other third-party judge to arbitrate. So that's one function of the law, that 
these statutes that Moses is to put before the people might be codified, might be put together and given to the people, that they themselves might know what God expects. But there are many, many, many other functions of the law, which we will have weeks to process through together. By the way, just a heads up, here's the plan. Lord willing, if I don't ramble too much next week through chapter 19, we're going to get through that entire chapter. And then comes the Ten Commandments of chapter 20. And we are, here's the plan, cringe face emoji, we are planning to spend 10 weeks through the Ten Commandments. One commandment per week. Uh, and that sounds like a lot. And, but I'm really getting more and more excited about this endeavor. Uh, I think there are just miles and miles and miles of depth for each commandment. So that it's actually true that perhaps even 10 weeks might not be enough. But it will be. It will be. Uh, So that said, we'll have plenty of time to consider together the coming law of Moses, the law of God. But for now, Jethro comes to Moses with some pretty bold language. In verse 19, he's coming in hot. He says, now obey my voice. Who's this guy? He's telling Moses, the image of God. He's saying, obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. There is wisdom that that God is giving even to Gentile men to give to Moses. Now, while Moses will indeed represent the people before God, he will be the intermediary between the people and God, Jethro is saying Moses does not need to be the intermediary between people and people. Develop uh, like a hierarchical structure of appeals. Look for men of high character to judge ten people. And if he can arbitrate and decide this minor squabble, then praise the Lord. This is great. This just saved a lot of time. But if that guy over the 10, if he can't figure things out, then send it up to a higher judge of 50. And if he can't figure it out, send it to a higher judge of 100 and then to a higher judge of 1,000. Jethro has basically just prescribed for Moses like a municipal court and then a district court and then like a circuit court of appeals and then a state supreme court. And then if those lower courts still can't figure it out, then they can appeal it to you, Moses, the federal supreme court chief justice Moses dressed in all black, a one-person bench, that he can arbitrate and decide with wisdom and with equity. Now, this isn't to say that judicial, assist, judicial systems that, uh, are, that are founded upon and are operating under like an appeal structure are necessarily God-ordained or something, or that right and wrong decisions, right decisions always happen in this kind of appeal structure or something like that. It's all that to say is that this system just seems wise. What Jethro has done is freed up Moses to actually hear the cases that he needs to hear. And he's made it so that Moses is able to lead and judge the people in a sustainable way over the course of his life. Another couple months, or certainly another couple years of this, of just all day, every day, mommy! Like Moses is just going to like just wander off into the desert. Like... (laughs) People are going to like, hey, isn't that Moses? He's like walking away. He sure was a nice guy. We just drove him away, right? Now, there isn't a one-to-one parallel between Israel and the church, between Moses and present-day pastors, but our church is structured in such a way that we are trying to follow after the wisdom of Jethro. Your GC leaders, your gospel community, small group leaders, are the very front lines of the ministry of our church. While sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes, These leaders of tens or fifteens might arbitrate or try to reconcile some difference between you. More often, they are just hearing of your day-to-day struggles. They are hearing of your heartache, of your doubts, of your sin. 
and they are leading you towards Christ. They are the ones who are encouraging and counseling you through those everyday difficulties of the Christian life. Now, that's not to say that we pastors, we are completely unaware of those things. We are meeting monthly with each of these leaders to hear of some of these things, to better equip them with more and more tools in their tool belt to help and counsel and encourage you all. And all of this either or allows us, the pastors, to either, one, lead our own GCs or to be available to take over some of the more difficult counseling or discipleship situations that come up that, you, that these GC leaders may not either feel equipped for or are able to uh, devote the given time that's needed. Now, I'm not offering really much by way here of practical application for us here. Like, I am preaching to the choir. Our church here is, the entire church is the choir, and it's wonderful, right? Our church is one by which, by and large, the membership has really and actually bought in to bear the responsibility of the care and the ministry of our church. Churches should never be made up of members who watch and observe the real Christians, the staff, do the real work of ministry. Members should not be the ones who come and sit in the stands and watch the game, observe the ministry of the Christian life. No, members do the work of the ministry. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that pastors exist not to do the work of ministry, but to equip the saints, to equip church members to do the work of the ministry, to equip you all to live as priests in the kingdom of heaven, to equip you all to love each other well, to serve each other well, to challenge each other well, to counsel each other well. And praise the Lord, that's happening in our church. Praise God for that. We don't just have one or two pastors who does the work of the ministry for our church, but these are happening delegated in a delegated sense, but in the sense that all of us are doing this together as God's people. We are growing together as a body into our head, which is Christ, and even through many difficult circumstances in our own personal lives. So while the wisdom of Jethro isn't a one-for-one practical application for us as a church, it's just principally wise. From a pastor to a judge or a manager or a CEO, I've heard of business leaders who aren't Christians trying to turn to chapter 18. And while I think they might be missing the ultimate point, which we'll talk about in just a minute, there's still some principal wisdom here to delegate, to equip, to equip people under your care to actually do the work, to trust other people. And yet, this is a strange story, isn't it? Jethro, he he shows up, he brings a sacrifice, he shares a meal with Moses and the elders of Israel, he drops some, some blessing, and he drops some wisdom, and then he's just out of there as soon as he came. The last verse of chapter 18, Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country, and that is the last that we ever hear of Jethro in the Bible ever again. This is a strange thing. If you're familiar with the Bible, though, Jethro might, might remind you of another guy who is very similar in the book before Exodus, the book of Genesis, where another guy named Melchizedek essentially does the exact same thing in Genesis 14 with Abraham. Melchizedek is also a Gentile priest who shows up out of nowhere, he shares a meal, he drops some blessing, he drops some wisdom, and then he just leaves, never to be heard from again. This is a weird thing happening. It's a weird pattern that is being repeated. But the function of these two priests are pretty simple. 
As tempting, I think, as it might be to think of Abraham in the book of Genesis or Moses in the book of Exodus as God's like appointed means to bring blessing to the earth, to bring restoration to his people, Abraham and Moses are not. They do, Abraham and Moses, they bring much good. They are moving the story forward, but they are lacking in the ability to bless the people fully. They need blessing themselves. They are lacking in wisdom. They need wisdom from others. They can act as intermediaries for some, but they are too limited to act as an intermediary for all. So in Deuteronomy 18, the people, they're about to enter the land and Moses is nearing the end of his own life. And he tells the people, basically on his deathbed, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, of course, Moses is probably most directly talking about Joshua, his successor. But then, I think he's also talking about each prophet that will come after, prophet after prophet. But all of these prophets, like Abraham and Moses, were all limited in their own right. Melchizedek with Abraham, Jethro with Moses, and the future history of Israel's limited prophets will push the story forward in anticipation, will push the story forward in expectation of another prophet who will be a priest. Of not a priest like Melchizedek and Jethro, but also they need another prophet like Abraham and Moses who will be both priest and prophet who will need no other human to bless him, who will need no other wisdom from anyone else. And in Luke 9, then we read this. Now about eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, literally, exodus, who spoke of his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Keep this story in mind as we get to Exodus 19 next week. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The Deuteronomy 18 prophet that Moses said, Listen to him. God the Father himself says he is here. And listen to him the intermediary who can hear and listen to every difficult problem of every single one of his people is here. He will not grow weary or tired of hearing from his people all day and every day. He will not wander off into the desert just to get some relief, to get away from them. But being fully God, he is able to hear from his people and ably bear their burdens. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, being fully man, he will represent his people by keeping the law fully and perfectly as the faithful covenant partner with God that Israel was never able to be. Praise God. Praise God 
that he is the righteous one. He is the faithful one. He is the one who loves us and bears our burdens as a sympathetic high priest who can understand and actually have the strength to carry our burdens and our weights, our doubts, our conflicts, our sin. He is the one who says, come to me, all who are weary, you who are tired, you who are wondering whether you will have the faith to continue tomorrow. Jesus says, come to me with your heavy laden shoulders and I will give you rest. It may not look like we want it to. It may not come as easily or quickly as we want it to, but he says, come. And until then, we will wait for his return with watchful expectation. When at last we will see him and be made like him, when our greatest hopes and desires are met in such a way that we maybe didn't even realize we wanted them met but they are finally and fully met. And as we continue to work through the book of Exodus, we're going to keep working through this theme of pilgrimage, of moving towards home. And while heaven is not our greatest hope, Christ is our hope, and the renewal of all things is our hope, of heaven inhabiting earth, of God dwelling with his people, not necessarily of us escaping earth to get to heaven. In a moment, we're nevertheless going to sing an old gospel hymn that I have just been excited about for weeks. A song of expectation and hope, a song of feasting and of joy, of peace, that of when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, how we'll sing and shout the victory. And then, get this, after we sing that, we're going to sing a song that will perhaps be familiar to most of you all, that of how great thou art, but then you can look forward to the end of that song when you can join us in singing the last chorus of that song in Spanish. For two reasons. One, For many of you in this room, Spanish is your first language, and there's just something about singing and worshiping God in your heart language that we want you to feel, uh, that many of us in this room feel every song with of singing in our first heart language. But a second reason that we want to do this tonight is that it's good for us to remember that at the marriage supper of of the Lamb, it will be a very, very small percentage of English speakers around that table. And it is good to ongoingly and regularly remind ourselves of where we are headed, of where we are headed to a place that there will no longer be feelings of ethnic or racial superiority, that there will no longer be, like we saw yesterday, satanic expressions of violence against other races and of other people of other backgrounds and origins. There will no longer be a desire to keep people and races separate, but that we are moving to a place where God himself is bringing all peoples together to be joined in Christ. God is saving for himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and how sweet it is to remind ourselves of our very, very small place within the kingdom of God but also to spur us on into taking greater ownership for our role as his image bearers in expanding his rule and reign on earth. So 
I'm not going to say anything else. Let's just keep going. I can't wait to sing these with you and join you in unity at this post-sacrifice meal of joy and of remembrance. Our Father, we are thankful for what you have done, how you have acted in history, how you have shown yourself. Now we know that you are greater than all the gods that we are tempted to worship. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of worshiping things that we ought not worship. Forgive us of our faithlessness. Forgive us of our small-mindedness for our shortchanging our own joy to be found in you. Father, forgive us for violence. Father, we cry out to you as a people of this country that you would bring peace, that you would give wisdom to legislators, that you would give, uh, that you would move in and amongst your churches in this country to actually bring transformation that can only come through the gospel, that you would bring love, that you would bring grace, that you would give peace. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, perhaps even some of us in this room who perhaps unwittingly can drift into feelings of racial or ethnic superiority. Father, forgive us. Remind us of our place within the kingdom of God and give us at least this local church here at Christ Church. Father, give many other churches in Albuquerque and across the world a gospel of peace and of reconciliation, of welcoming and of inclusion that you might purify us and that you might bring us unity. Through Christ our King, we pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.